For some people, Halloween isn't just another holiday or an excuse to wear a costume and eat candy. I was asked to do a, uh, a little intro thing for a possible reality show about us. And they, and they said, well, why don't you just talk about how much you love Halloween? So I came out of the coffin door and like introduced myself and I love Halloween. I love Halloween more than anybody I know. How do you judge such a thing? I said, well, here's how you judge it. I've lost two marriages and three houses so far for Halloween and I just keep going. <laughs> this is Ricky Dick. He started out as a costume maker. In his 20s, he owned a costume shop on the Jersey Shore, performing as a clown and as a magician. Then, about 25 years ago, he and his then-wife decorated their porch into a kind of mini-haunted house for Halloween, mostly to entertain neighborhood kids. It was supposed to be a one-off stunt, but the kids loved it. It was pirate-themed. They hung old burn sheets all over the house to look like sails, installed a plank out of a second-story door, and filled a treasure chest with gold chocolate coins. The next Halloween, Dick and his wife wear elaborate vampire ball gowns, reusing costumes they'd made for a science fiction convention. They overheard a kid tell his father, I really like this castle, and began calling their attraction Castle Blood. After several more Halloweens, the haunted house had expanded to both of their porches, through one room of the house and out to a maze they built in their quarter-acre backyard. Four to five hundred kids a night were lining up, and Dick and his wife realized this could be a new career. It's just like a bad sitcom. It just got totally out of hand and went crazy on us. And The haunted house outgrew their actual house, and in 2012, it moved to an office park. By then, it had become Dick's full-time job. Today, Castle Blood operates out of a former funeral parlor in Monesson, Pennsylvania, about 30 miles south of Pittsburgh. It looks like the Adams Family House. Decorated with spooky portraits and assorted accessories, some of them, like a kneeler, an original artifact from the funeral parlor days. For Dick, running a haunted house is something nostalgic, something sentimental. You know, for, for Halloween to work, it has to be magical. I grew up in a charmed time. I grew up in that neighborhood that's in the first Halloween movie. You know, my neighborhood looked like the Wonder Years. It looked like E.T.'s trick-or-treating neighborhood. That's where I grew up. It was all ranch houses built on an old farm, and the farmhouse was still in the middle. And the little old lady would bring you up on the porch and give you cider and donuts like in Hocus Pocus. That was real. And then I just got spoiled by it, and that's what I've tried to do here for everybody. In the Pittsburgh region, Dick is far from alone in his love for this nostalgia-infused vision of Halloween, where most haunted houses were run by fire departments or organizations like the Elks and the JCs. Now... Western Pennsylvania is a haunted house mecca. While most major cities can support multiple commercially run haunted houses like Castle Blood simply based on their large populations, there are about 40 haunted attractions within 40 miles of Pittsburgh. The haunts, as their purveyors call them, can draw nightly crowds of thousands. They run the gamut from Hollywood-style high-budget horror to shoestring upstarts that hark back to the industry's charity roots. Most haunts operate fewer than 30 days a year, a precarious financial position that relies on drawing consistent crowds for their businesses to succeed. In a way, it makes perfect sense for Pittsburgh to have a thriving Halloween culture. The region's history has become well-known, in part thanks to the 2016 presidential election, which often pointed towards the archetypal story of industrial decay. I'm looking at your numbers. I mean, Pittsburgh, you got wiped out, folks. I hate to say it. You got wiped out. Your manufacturing's way down. You steal his way down. I look at Pittsburgh, and you know, maybe I'm a little old-fashioned, but I love steel, okay? 
I love steel. From the late 70s to early 80s, when the steel industry collapsed, the region's economy did too, and the area was left with a surplus of abandoned buildings, low rent, and a general feeling of being, well, haunted. The haunts have leveraged this decline into what is now a $300 to $500 million haunted attractions industry, which attracts out-of-towners and infuses local economies with cash. to really be scared here. Johnny. You're still afraid. Stop it now. I mean it. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. But even before the steel industries collapsed, the region was a hotbed for horror. George Romero's genre-defining film, Night of the Living Dead, was filmed in rural Evans City, Pennsylvania, 30 miles north of Pittsburgh, in 1968. The, the major creative forces really are Pittsburgh-based, Pittsburgh people. And uh, I, I guess if there's any banner that we wave, it's that you can do it that way, that you really don't have to produce just in L.A. or New York, that the middle of the country has a lot of talent, and so why not do it here? Shot in black and white and featuring lumbering undead swarming an old farmhouse, the film is largely credited with popularizing the modern conception of zombies. For Scott Simmons, co-owner and creative director of an elaborate haunt called Scarehouse, Romero's career is more than just a way to think about styling his haunt. It's emblematic of the kind of homespun horror he's dedicated his life to. I think Pittsburgh is a wonderfully weird town and doesn't get enough credit for that. We embrace that whole zombie thing. We have zombie walks. We have, like, there's, we're so accepting of weird and strange stuff around here, which is great. I think on one level there's a sense of all the people from Pittsburgh my age growing up with Romero movies and knowing that they were shot here, I'm sure sort of helped. You know, I'm sure they helped sort of enhance our love of it. But I think there's something so uniquely Pittsburgh about how Night of the Living Dead was made that I think also is what informs the whole haunted house culture in that... Night Living Dead was one of the first truly independent movies in that it was George Romero and the Image 10 guys who said, let's just throw our money together, let's get some outside investors, some dentists, some doctors, people looking for tax write-offs, get a bunch of money and make a movie. They weren't waiting for permission, they weren't waiting for somebody from Hollywood to come in and save them. And that to me is such a specific Pittsburgh mentality of... We don't need all that. We can do this ourselves. Embracing Romero's can-do spirit has paid off for Scarehouse, which today is a haunt that often makes top 10 lists of the scariest haunts in the country. Scarehouse operates three different haunts, employing nearly 200 staff for its season. This year, for Night of the Living Dead's 50th anniversary, it made sure to pay tribute to its roots, resurrecting one of its most popular haunts, Pittsburgh Zombies, reanimated. When there's no more room in hell... The dead will walk here. Tom Savini, the makeup and special effects artist and Pittsburgh native, who created the gore in Romero's next movies, Dawn of the Dead, Martin, and Creepshow, runs a makeup and special effects school, one of the only degree programs of its kind in Manesson, Pennsylvania. 
Many Savini School graduates work in haunts as they complete their degrees, and some stay in the area after graduation to run their own. In the early aughts, the Savini School operated its own haunt, which retains near-mythological status among local haunt owners. His latest masterpiece, Tom Savini's Terror Mania, a horrifying haunted house in Manesson, created with the help of colleagues and makeup special effects students he teaches at the Douglas Education Center. Visitors exit in shock and then can't wait to go back inside. There were 27 rooms, a subway, caves full of monsters, and an entire hallway with crawling spiders projected onto the walls. Terror Mania staff hung fishing line from the ceiling to lightly brush visitors' faces in the dark, spreading packing peanuts on the floor, and about halfway through the haunt, contrived a situation where groups had to hold on to a 60-foot section of rope, which got wetter and slimier as they moved forward. Chris Pert, a Savini School alumnus and former faculty member, worked at Savini's Terror Mania building animatronics. I still think Terramana is probably the best haunted house I've ever been in my entire life. I really do. For Pert, practical horror effects have been a lifelong fascination. Growing up in Frederickstown, Pennsylvania, he stole his mother's cosmetics during Halloween to make up all the other kids in the neighborhood. At 13, Pert created his first haunt in the woods, hanging white sheets, dousing them with caro corn syrup blood, and setting up monsters he'd collected. When so many people came that parked cars started blocking roads, the fire department arrived to shut him down. He vowed to own his own haunt one day. Now, he and his wife Veronica co-own Demon House in Monongahela, Pennsylvania, a sprawling haunt set inside a 128-year-old four-story brick mansion with a spiral staircase and stained glass windows. Visitors walk through the mansion's 17 rooms, including an insane asylum and a butcher shop, and several outdoor areas like a cemetery. For me, it's, it's the scare. I like to sit here and watch the people come running out of there in fear for their life. It gives me the feeling <laughs> of Christmas morning when I was a child. <laughs> yeah. Under Demon House's previous ownership, Chris Pert was its makeup artist and advised its set design for 18 years. Similar to his experience at Terramania, he remembers pushing boundaries. Once, he and the former owner... Billy McHugh, designed a room full of live crickets in cages with the intention that customers would throw the fruit in the cage and these crickets would just attack their fruit and it would be gone in like seconds. Like it'd be a core of an apple and it all would be there. So that was the concept and that's what he was told that this guy was building and he was going to do. So the day we opened, Billy goes and releases the crickets into their aquariums, built into the walls. In a matter of minutes, all 55 gallon drum of crickets he put in these things were gone. They went into the outlets and went into the whole entire house and infested the house. And for three days, we were just scooping crickets up with shovels and getting them out after the weekend. They never alive. We were just letting them loose out in the the wild because they were just wild crickets. It was crazy. And the the chirping. Oh my, the chirping. (laughs) (laughs) But we did find out after that that crickets do bite. (laughs) We did not know that. They are, they are not poisonous or anything. And I couldn't, I didn't believe it at first, but actors were coming out with tiny, like little, little flea bite looking things on them. We had our experiences here. We've learned a lot from, from trial and errors. Yeah. Rather than buy large animatronics or outsource their props and sets, as a bigger budget haunt might do, Chris and his wife Veronica are still proud to handcraft everything themselves. Veronica, like Chris, is a Savini School graduate and does makeup for all Demon House's actors. 
she likens their haunt to a craft beer. Since purchasing Demon House in 2014, renovations have been ongoing, even with a couple balancing life with a four-year-old son and two-year-old daughter. I would literally have, oh. yeah, a new a newborn baby in a little rocker chair in the asylum while I was shooting spider webs at the, the wall, like Sometimes the, the other around the corner. She'd be, she oh, was, yeah. I have I pictures makeup. of her doing makeup with yeah. the baby strapped to her. Yeah, yeah, I've done makeup with a baby strapped to me. Troy and Susie Fleesick are another pair of married haunt co-owners who run the Crawford School of Terror in Connellsville, Pennsylvania. They're also emblematic of that economical, practical DIY aesthetic. Both still work day jobs. Troy, a machinist, builds the haunt sets and props, and Susie, who runs her own nail salon, coordinates the haunt and oversees its creative side. Yeah, I mean, we are we are normal. It's funny because I always say people that are involved in haunts and people that are involved in the haunt industry, I feel like there's two different kinds of people. First type is like they're diehards. They love it for the love of it. Then you've got the entrepreneurial type. Those are the haunt owners. That's us. The Crawford School uses mostly teenage actors to spook visitors as they move through a former elementary school built in 1916. The scares rely heavily on setting and atmosphere. There are scenes in the psychotic principal's office, school bathroom, and the cafeteria where evil lunch ladies serve plates of blood and guts. When praised for their minimalism, the Fleasics say there's a good reason for it. That's a result of not having a whole lot of money. I can tell you that. That's our secret. <laughs> our secret is, is yeah. we don't have any uh, in investors. It's him and I, and it's our extra money. And money that we might have left over from one season that goes into the next season. And that's how we do it. Though the industry is moving towards larger, more spectacular experiences, Pittsburgh area haunts like the Crawford School resist the trend, staying true to their charity roots. Even Scott Simmons, running Sierra House as a Hollywood-level attraction, remains nostalgic for its humbler beginnings. I remember a, a moment a few year, several years ago where it was basically a kind of retreat. I was a bunch of, because again, I'm in contact with other haunted house owners all around the country, and all of us basically had a kind of retreat. We all met in this uh, hotel in the middle of the country, and we were together, and we'd been together for like eight hours. Like a bunch of haunted house people all together for eight hours. And I realized we spent the whole day talking, brainstorming, doing all this stuff. Not once did we talk about anything fun. It was sponsorship programs and, and credit card processing and safety code violation, all this stuff. I'm like, uh, when are we going to talk about the fun stuff? And I thought, oh, this is, I guess this is a business now. You know, and it, I mean, it always treated it like a business, but... That for me was the moment when I'm like, oh, I guess I gotta, it's going to be up to me to sort of find the fun in it because as an industry, you know, that's when, a, when, a, when your hobby becomes an industry, that stuff's really important. Simmons shares the business trajectory of his peers. Starting out as a teenager volunteering at a haunt at the YMCA in Baldwin, Pennsylvania, and hopping between cheesy 80s charity haunts in the Pittsburgh suburbs for Halloween. If I could figure out a way to do an 80s-style haunted house and have people get it, I would do it in a heartbeat. And, you know, some of our design meetings, we've, we have actually thrown out, like, what if it started this way and then went, and we thought, it's too abstract. Our audience would go like, why is it lame? Haunted attractions may be a thriving industry in the Pittsburgh region, but for many of the owners, the business is the least important aspect of the whole thing. 
We have no plans on ever stopping this, actually. When you see an empty Kmart, we're like, Crawford School of Terror Part 2, right there! <laughs> you know, every, every October we get back together and count the pacemakers as a party game around here. I will be limping around here with my walker, my little tennis balls on it if I have to, I don't care. I, I will do this for the rest of my life if I can. I really will. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. This episode was produced by Rachel Wilkinson, Tyler McAndrew, Violet Luca, and Matthew Sherrill. Special thanks to the University of Pittsburgh and Cement City Productions. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.